You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active children. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> <laughs> Which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L.com. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 17 of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We're happy to have you with us. My name is Josh, as always. I'm joined by Joey and Paul. What's going on, Paul? Oh, man, I'm doing good. Thanks. Joey, what's good? I'm good. I'm still in the land of freedom. <laughs> <laughs> we, did, we did refer to you as still being in freedom land when we were talking about uh, talking about things today on our daily Q-Teen update. For those of you listening into this that aren't aware, Paul and I, we're uh, north of the border in Canada as we're two days into our 14-day quarantine period before we can travel north to a gold mine in Nunavut. But we're in Montreal quarantining for two weeks before we're able to do our actual job. So to save us from boredom and uh, overall cabin fever, we're putting out a daily update. The quarantine update number one and number two are available wherever you get this podcast. And we talk about our trials and tribulations of traveling up here during this time. So with all that said, uh yeah joey you're probably doing a little bit better than us or at least less bored for sure i think the only thing y'all got on me is you have better access to poutine <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> paul, paul how was your poutine uh today we, we got we got pretty much the same thing but w- what would you grade it well hold on did you go to the same place i went to yes yes we did oh same okay place. nice i didn't i didn't know that yeah i actually i loved it because the fries joey you gotta imagine it's like uh it was like having five guys' fries as your base for the poutine. I thought it was excellent. The, the gravy uh, was not too heavy, but it wasn't it wasn't runny either. Uh, a lot of salt coming through, and the cheese curds were good, man. It was it was very well done poutine. Uh, ate it with an all beef jumbo hot dog, uh, slaw, kraut, uh, relish, mustard. You know, just a good a good solid hot dog, and uh, rounded it out with these. Uh, one of these sparkling water drinks that I have to admit I've grown quite fond of. <laughs> so explain to me too, um, are you able to leave the room at all? Okay, so what are your limitations in the hotel y'all are in? 
Okay, we went from one hotel to a second hotel. So the first hotel we were staying in was like the equivalent of like a supermax facility. We were locked down. We literally had security guards roaming the hallways. You could not leave your room for anything. You didn't get to decide what you wanted to eat. It got dropped off at your door, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. All right. So you were under lock and key, no fresh air. They, they did allow us yard time. If you wanted to go out with a mask on with a security guard on your hip, they would they would give you like 15 minutes of fresh air. Look, man, I wasn't doing none of that. Uh, we just did our time, got out. We're now in a in a separate hotel to finish out our quarantine stay. So the difference between what was last time and this time, the difference is that if we wanted to walk outside of on stay on the property and, and walk outside and get fresh air on our own, we can. And we can have food delivered here that we want to eat. Uh, but other than that, the rules are pretty much the same. You know, they've got us, uh, they're tracking us. The government's tracking us on an app. It's not a joke. Everybody listen to this. Probably think I'm joking. Not joking. There's literally an app uh, that they've got us uh, on our phones, tracking us where we're at. They know where we're supposed to be. And look, man, <laughs> Josh and I, we read the penalties of the Quarantine Act, which is active here in Canada. And I ain't messing around. I ain't going to prison for two years or getting a, it was a million dollar fine. If you're found violating quarantine and spread COVID a million dollar. Now granted they're Canadian dollars. So it's like, you know, not quite a dollar. <laughs> what, what is it's about 80 cents on a dollar, right? It's more money than I'm paying. I'm staying my butt here in this hotel room. <laughs> so y'all able to or, go to the gym and stuff like that in the hotel? No, not allowed to use any common spaces, um, but they're not going to know, which it doesn't matter. The gym, sh they shut that down here. So mm. the hotel gym is closed, business centers closed, restaurants closed, uh, closed for dine-in. The restaurant and the hotel will bring you food only like two hours out of the day. Mm -hmm. So I know y'all are gym rats. Y'all like to work out and lift heavy things. Are y'all just like doing, like lifting the furniture in the room or what y'all doing for exercise? Push-ups, sit-ups. I'm so damn bored right now, I've actually done a few burpees. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we talked about it on our quarantine podcast. We were like, yeah, you got to do push-ups and sit-ups. That's really all you got. Man, I honestly, that doesn't sound too bad to me. Just quiet, food brought to you, <laughs> two weeks. I mean, <laughs> eh, you know. I can hear your daughter in the background, so I can I can understand where you're coming from there, but I, I still don't agree. But that's yeah, okay. Josh, <laughs> Josh is gonna edit this so people listening can't hear the baby crying in the back. But oh yeah, yeah. she knew uh she knew we were recording, so she came home early. Yeah, she's probably <laughs> quiet all day long. You hit mm -hmm. that record button, she gets after it. <laughs> she had a doctor's appointment this afternoon, so Krista took her and they just got home a little bit ago. Ten so. four, man. What are you doing down there in the land of freedom? Got any concrete jobs running? Went to the CIM patrons meeting on was it Tuesday? That was that was pretty good to go to. Saw a lot of familiar faces, and uh, they actually elected new patrons officers for the next. I think the president runs for three years, and then the vice president and secretary slash treasurer runs for a year, a couple of years. I forget. Um, Jesse Boone is the new president, who was a guest on the show. Uh, the VP is Natalie Martin, who was also a guest on the show. And the secretary and treasurer is uh, Alec Yancey, who was also on the show. So yeah, we're just poking the board. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we got some representation around there now. 
I like that's what well, I like to hear. Yeah, Ella hit me up. Uh, I didn't realize they all three uh, got on the board. But that's awesome, man. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. The yep. Add 10 Gallons cool. Concrete Podcast, the official podcast of the CIM program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's uh, that's good brand awareness by them is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. That's cool, man. Yeah, I'll tell you what, though. I landed. So we had a, to get to Montreal. It was quite a trip. And uh, it, it was just it was just weird. It was just weird. I mean, it's like, Joe, you've been to Canada probably like 10 times. I've been here a dozen times. Josh's been here probably like 20 times. It was just different this time. Like the people were just like on pins and needles, kind of anxious that the people at the airport, you know, the airport was completely empty. It was like a ghost town. Uh, they were looking at us like we were crazy. We're trying to come to Canada. And it, it's like nobody knew what to do. Like the rule, nobody knew what the real rules were. The change in every week It was very, very mm-hmm. strange atmosphere. It had a weird feeling to it. But uh, I tell you, what, tell you what, this is this is just the life of being in business development. So everybody that's listening to this, uh, a lot of our listeners are in sales and they're in business development. They're gonna they're gonna totally understand this story. After after a long day of traveling in a weird circumstance, being interrogated, held up at immigration and interrogated by Canada's version of an ICE officer and all this nonsense. We finally get settled into a room, not even joking, 30 minutes. And I got a call from a concrete company in Pennsylvania right in my backyard that I've been trying to get a hold of for five months. And they, <laughs> of course, they call me as soon as I touch down in Montreal and like, yeah, man, we'd love to have you out and try Actigel. Let's go have a demo. Are you, are you around next week? Uh, all y'all's prospects about to be getting on the horn for unknown circumstances they're all gonna be ready to try stuff next week yep yep so i was like no i appreciate that uh any chance we can pick this up in june (laughs) (laughs) it'll go by quick i mean i say it'll go by quick and i only say that because you know i was in south america for two and a half weeks on one trip but I was doing stuff. I wasn't holed up in the hotel room for two of those weeks like y'all going to be. So are y'all going to do these little mini episodes like every day? You going to try to knock them out every day? Yeah, I mean, so far we're two for two. Uh, we'll probably we'll probably take tomorrow off, maybe Sunday. We might come back Monday with like a weekend update or a, a weekend recap. I mean, so far we've had, you know, different interesting things to talk about each day. So as long as we have about 10 to 15 minutes of, of good content for the people, we'll keep putting them out on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as long as there's content, I'd love to do it every day. As long as there's content, I mean, I want to come on here and just like make something up and just manufacture drama. But so far, that like stuff's been happening. It's kind of weird to see and, and experience and to be able to share that. But yeah, as mm-hmm. long as something's happening, uh, I'm I'm down to do it uh, every day that, that something goes on. So I, I'm with Josh. We'll probably have another one out, uh, like a weekend recap, probably the next one. You need you a scale. Like you should have weighed yourself when you first got into this hotel. Then after eating two weeks of Uber Eats. No, I weighed myself before I came out here. It was not good <laughs> y'all, <laughs> on that scale. Y'all ain't going to get fat. You're just going to get prison fit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'll see Josh posting Snapchat videos. He's up under his bed, like benching the, the end of the bed up, trying to keep some <laughs> muscle toned up. Yeah. Yeah. Paul's over there doing squats with the end of the couch. Yeah, I see how it's going. Speaking of uh, seeing everybody again, being face-to-face and meeting one another, uh, World of Concrete is right around the corner, uh, June 7th-ish, somewhere around there, give or take a couple days. And we'll be there in some capacity. I have a couple calls out right now 
with a few questions that still need to be answered that pertain to what we can do for the podcast while we're there because uh, the War of Concrete, they have a few um, podcast shows that they're putting out during the show and they do their own media and their own media work and stuff like that. So what we're able to do may or may not be limited. We may or may not need a press pass. I'm trying to get all of that answered now, but we won't have an actual booth. Cost to benefit ratio for us is a little bit outside of, of our window. And, and also it would, I mean, it would limit us on what we're able to do. We want to go around and actually talk to people in their booths, uh, talk to people that we have had on the show before, get updates from people in the industry, things of that nature. And that would be easier to do if we were able to walk around and bring our equipment with us and not be tied down to a desk in a hall somewhere. So, uh, I'm trying to, trying to determine the workarounds for that and see how much, how much media and how much uh, podcasting we can actually do while at the show, but we'll be there nonetheless. So that's coming up in about a month. Yeah. I think you had a good plan there, Josh, about taking our video camera and tripod and a couple microphones and go around the, the halls and go see the things that interest us. There's people that interest us, people we know, and uh, let's sit down and have a couple minute chats with people, you know, talk about what they got and put it out into the world and share it with our listeners, our audience, uh, both, you know, all forms of social media. You know, we've got a YouTube channel now. Uh, we're just looking at getting that fired up. This could be uh, another way to supplement that. Uh, you know, I think your ideas are great and I look forward to seeing people out there. Definitely. And one guy we might see out there uh, is a guest on the show here today. It's, it's a special guest for us. It's, it's a guy that we've wanted to have on here for quite some time. And he might have taken a little, a little convincing. And it probably helps that some people close to him in his inner circle have, have come on the show before. But we finally got Colin Lobo on the show. Uh, he's an executive VP from the NRMCA. He teaches the short courses and, and all of the, the concrete educational courses that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have have taken before and he might be one of the smartest guys we've ever had on the podcast or will ever have on the podcast who knows but uh his his knowledge is 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 limitless it seems like but then the longer you get talked to him you realize he has a great sense of humor and if you're into that dry sense of humor i mean i, I laughed during the interview way more than i was anticipating so it was a good time and we're definitely excited for you guys to listen to this interview we have here on episode 17 and that's with colin lobo with the nrmca We brought in the NRMCA. Thanks, Colin, for joining us. Uh, you worked there, worked there for a long time. Uh, just give the people that are listening to this just a, a broad definition of the NRMCA and uh, the NRMCA's role in the concrete industry. Yeah, so NRMCA is uh, based on a membership basis. So our members are primarily ready-mixed concrete producers, and uh, we have an associate member category where they are uh, either material suppliers or uh, service providers to the industry. And our general role is to basically protect and enhance the uh, use of ready-mixed concrete as a building product. Uh, so we go about it by uh, various things. We have advocacy efforts that would be essentially trying to address uh, government affairs or legislative type, as well as regulatory issues that impact the industry. Uh, we uh, advocate on the technical side, naturally, in the codes and standards arena, not only within the concrete material side, but also in the broader codes where we try to um, fight or support code change proposals that can adversely impact concrete. Uh, we also have a very strong promotion uh, focus where 
Primarily, we have the Build with Strength program that you might have heard of, and it's a primary goal to promote uh, concrete, uh, essentially, with the challenge of wood construction. And, and we also have a strong effort on the paving side on promotion. And, and we stay away from mainline paving. We've got the American Concrete Pavement Association that primarily focuses on mainline paving. So our paving would be more ready-mix market focus. That would be parking lots, um, streets and local roads, those types of applications. Also do have uh, research uh, activities. We have a research lab in College Park uh, that uh, sort of uh, supports research for our technical initiatives as well as does a lot of testing for our member companies. And then we have a very strong educational program uh, where we have educational programs for all facets of the ready-mix industry, but in many cases also for, in some cases, contractors. Some of these are certification programs. Some of these are primary educational programs. But mostly for the industry uh, focus, uh, we do have certification-related programs. So the courses are not only just sit and listen, but you're responsible for the content where you have to answer an exam and, and then uh, meet some certain criteria to get the certification. We try to educate, uh, we, we have a couple of contractor focused. One is on pervious concrete uh, placement. Another one is for general flat work type contractor um, education and certification. And, and then we try to have educational programs for uh, the general use uh, audience that could include engineers and architects. Well, you talk about those courses, the educational courses and how you got to pass an exam if you want that certificate. And if anybody listening to this thinks he's joking about that, those exams are no joke. You better really be paying attention. This ain't one of those things where you just show up and you're breathing so you get a certificate. No, you got to really answer the questions. Yeah, and we sort of try to gauge who comes. So when we knew you were coming, Paul, we made the exam a little harder. So, you know. <laughs> so I want to take that as a compliment. So let's... Uh, Let's talk about your role. You mentioned the ACI codes, ASTM specifications, test methods. You're involved with that and teaching some of the courses. Uh, could you expand on what your role is and then what your background is? How'd you get here? Yeah, so basically, I uh, uh, let's see, how back do you want to go in the background? But uh, I... <laughs> so uh, we got all the time <laughs> in the world. <laughs> uh, so I originate from India. I was basically brought up in boarding schools in a Jesuit boarding setting. Uh, and then uh, did my bachelor's of engineering in India before I came here for graduate school. And I uh, graduated from Purdue. And as soon as I finished my graduation, I, I joined NRMCA. Uh, so that was almost 30 years ago. And I really haven't uh, gone out that much. So it's primarily been within the association. You know, we, we do have the opportunity to go out on job sites. We do a lot of on-site testing if we can have that opportunity. I was uh, fortunate to have very good mentors, uh, both in uh, Purdue uh, with the professors, as well as at uh, NRMCA with uh, sort of uh, Dick Gaynor. Some of you may know Tarek Khan. I wish to work with him. He's with the Master Builders right now, uh, Rick Meininger. And, and so um, we had a lot of um, good uh, ingraining, if you will, about uh, what the industry, uh, what is the role of uh, our, our group uh, within the uh, industry, if you will. So the um, focus within the engineering division is um, basically about a few things. We are very active, of course, in the standards arena. Uh, we have a 
standing committee called the Research Engineering and Standards Committee that we, we discuss these issues and try to get direction from the industry members uh, towards those activities. Um, we manage a plant certification program that has about 2,000 plants that are certified under the NRMCA program and it's required on many projects. We do research uh, either through, if we can get funding to do some research that would be primarily for the benefit of the industry or towards directing uh, changes in the standards. Uh, we do a lot of uh, contract testing, if you will, for member companies and for even others who are trying to evaluate products or you know, develop mixed designs for submittals or those, uh, those sorts of details or you know, just a lot of aggregate testing, if you will. We do get involved in education courses. So our primary course in the engineering division is the technical short course, which is a fundamental one week course uh, that has two levels of certification associated with it. Uh, we uh, do also have a um, durability course, which is a two-day course, which is more understanding the mechanisms of the various factors that impact concrete durability and, and the standards on how they address it in the standards. Uh, we have a one-day specifications course and addressing strength testing issues. And then we have a, another one-day course that addresses improving concrete quality. So those two one-day courses are basically managed by my colleague, Karthik Obluff. But I, we do get involved in um, other courses, such as the plant manager course. Uh, whenever there's a technical section to a, another course, we, we get drawn in to, uh, to, to talk about that. And there are opportunities for various presentations at uh, local groups or national groups. When we're talking about various initiatives. Now, one of our big initiatives has been for a while uh, to evolve specifications to more of a performance-based type of you know, specification where we see a lot of specifications that get to be prescriptive, uh, where they tell you how much cement to use or uh, ask you to use unreasonable water cement ratios. And in those cases, we're trying to evolve to remove, first of all, prescriptive requirements or limits so that concrete producers have the better uh, opportunity to optimize their mixtures for the actual performance and hopefully for improved profitability. And uh, also, if, if you're permitted to do that, we, we basically say that uh, performance specification also helps the big drive nowadays is towards sustainability. So they're very much linked. If, if you get a performance spec that has less restrictions on you, uh, you have a better chance of meeting sustainability goals for construction projects. Yeah, yeah. On our end of of the business, that seems like what everybody wants. The concrete companies, the concrete producers, want to be able to design with their materials. Or look, I can make a better mix than what they're prescribing here. Why can't it be performance based? I've actually never heard the other side of the argument. So, what is the other side of the argument? Why not? Well, uh, there could be a couple of reasons. One is that there is a slight shift in responsibility, though that might be just on paper or with the lawyers. But if you basically feel that you, you are uh, essentially taking on a specification that tells you how to put the mix together, then conceptually, you cannot be responsible for how that mix performs if you satisfy the specification as it was written. In reality, that's not really true. Um, but I would say that that sort of tends to be the supporting point of, uh, I would call glorified truckers. So, you know, basically they have a truck and they want to basically do whatever someone tells them to do and deliver that load. Uh, but they don't want to have the control over how they would uh, increase the profitability of that uh, of their business. So that's my 
perspective. And I, I, I could get in trouble seeing that also. But <laughs> Well, we're usually working with the quality guys or the management teams or ownership teams. And they're, they're like you, they're looking at sustainability, profitability. And they're like, well, I can make a better mix than what's in the spec if they would just let me and it would be better for everybody. Um, so they're not uh, concerned about the liability aspect of it. Of if I take ownership of this mix design, I'm going to be liable for this mix design. They're saying, yeah, that's fine because we're going to blow these uh, specifications out of the water. So I, I never knew what, who was it that was stopping them from making this change. I just never, I never understood it. Could, is there anything else you could add to that to help me understand? Yeah. So basically I would say that, uh, you know, from our general surveys, the cost of, uh, let's say materials, which is under the control of a quality control or technical division is about 55% of the sale price of the concrete, uh, of the concrete. Okay. So if you're selling concrete for a hundred dollars a yard, uh, you're essentially spending $55 a yard for uh, the materials. And, and so the quality control department has a big stake or opportunity to reduce that particular thing. Therefore, if you reduce that section of the pie, you increase the profitability. The issue with respect to performance specifications is that uh, issue of familiarity. So if, you, if you're not very confident or you haven't had the history of, let's say, developing a mix for a new type of test, then you have a lot more homework to do. Okay, and so uh, that's a challenge. And so let's say we are, let's say, familiar with designing concrete for strength. And if we have to now design it for shrinkage, uh, then we have to do a little more work to make that mix optimize. And some people are willing to do that. Uh, some people are not. Then on the other side of that is uh, the issue of competitiveness. And so if someone has actually invested, let's say, in a higher quality, or product development, they may not get the bid because the low bid wins. And so that's the challenge. So you have a higher investment. You probably have a better quality. You can supply it to a, a higher level of uh, specification, but someone will outbid you on that. And they probably get in trouble for that, but uh, that's how you might lose the job. You know, that, that thing. Yeah, that's business. I mean, it's the triangle of quality, customer service, speed, could be one of those in that triangle and then price. And then the problem is the commodity mindset generates yeah. you know, the, the mindset of price. So the, the issue there, of course, is that if the industry invested in their technical or quality control department, uh, they should see the benefit. And so we have a resource, let's say, that we, we talk about is to quantify the cost of poor quality. As your cost for poor quality increases, maybe your investment to control that cost needs to go up. There's a little bit of investment that has to go up, but then hopefully that cost of poor quality can go down. And we have various various factors which you can look at to quantify your cost of poor quality. That could be that you're over-designing way more than you need to. Uh, you're getting rejected loads. You're getting callbacks to tear out concrete. All that is all the cost of poor quality. Did you say you actually did a study of this or there's a calculator somebody can use? You've already put this together. Yeah, there is there is a resource on our website. So basically, uh, the committee has come up with a general concept. Uh, we um, do have a annual quality award. We, we quantify quality benchmarks for the industry mm -hmm. uh, that says, OK, this is the benchmark or average level that the industry is operating at. And, and, you know, you could operate better than that or, you know, whatever. 
but on our website, we do have a spreadsheet that you can download and plug in numbers and see what your cost of quality is and track it so that you can reduce it. That's interesting. Yeah, your benchmark surveys are phenomenal. I mean, the data that you capture is incredible. So I didn't realize yeah. there was also this, uh, this, this other way to quantify what you're doing. And, you know, we got to talking about the mixed designs and, and that was a great answer. Thank you for that answer. Uh, it really shed light on the other side of, of the argument. Uh, but as we're talking about designing mixes, uh, whether it's existing mixes or new mixes, new ways of looking at designing, like against whether it's you know for strength or for shrinkage or maybe for anti-washout properties or whatever it is, what is your perspective on artificial intelligence designing concrete mixes? Mm, I know there are several efforts on artificial intelligence. I think that, um, I mean, the problem again is that the materials vary so much within, even within a region and between regions, that to come up with a computer telling that telling you what your mix design should be for a 4,000 psi non-air and train concrete is difficult. I mean, I think you have to, uh, you have to, but but I think there are efforts uh, ongoing to, to to try to do that. But I I'm not uh, very tuned into the artificial intelligence part of that. We were just made aware of it like three weeks ago, <laughs> so so we're not in tune with it either. But we thought it was fascinating that they're trying to pull yeah. information together, and you know, the more the machine learning, more data that's fed into it, uh, the better the machine will get at predicting outcomes based on aggregate gradation, sizes, shapes, types, regions, cements, you know, all this stuff, all the variables that go into this thing. Yeah, I think for a specific company, if they had such a tool like that, I think that would be useful. But uh, as a broad tool, it might be much, much more difficult uh, to, to do. Because I was trying to relate it back to what you were saying about prescriptive mixes. So if if you're running a certain type of test, you know, for a test mix, and it says, you know, you in the and it actually prescribes, you know, you need to have 675 pounds of cement at a 0.4 water cement ratio, and your aggregates need to be at this ratio, uh, course defined. And you know, couldn't the artificial intelligence essentially do the same thing, just a little bit more accurately? Or, uh, you know, I'm trying to, I, I don't could. A, a little bit of a disconnect to think that the artificial intelligence couldn't have a role, and we're trying to do the same thing as people in the spec already, right? Yeah, so since I'm not that uh, familiar with the concepts that go into that process, I'm not sure I can comment on it, but it's, it would be, in my mind, a little difficult considering the various uh, uh, factors that would be involved to come up with that mixed design. Oh, come on, Colin. This podcast is about talking about things you don't know anything about. Come on. <laughs> what are we doing? Now? And I've been bullshitting well so far. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get I, I got a I got a question here. The standards that are in there I, years ago, uh, I liked participating in it, um, but some of the meetings I went to drove me insane. Drove me insane because we were sitting there and we spent so much time talking about whether we should use the word will or shall, and it seemed so important to like the couple of people that were driving the meeting, and I didn't get it. I didn't understand. Can you again? It's another situation where I need you to educate me, sir. Can you please tell me why that's so important? So I think uh, it depends on what you're writing. I think it's also uh, a general mandate that codes and standards are written in what they call mandatory language. That means it is terse and telling you what you should do and what you shall accomplish. 
And so the words that, let's say the International Building Code, if they want to reference your standard, tells you that this language has to not be permissive. That means it doesn't have to allow for an interpretation that you can do different things. Uh, you have to do the specific thing that has been directed to you in that standard. So for example, let me take a simple standard is uh, if I say that uh, you can take a cylinder and you can cure it any way you want to, or you can take that cylinder and you cure it exactly like we tell you, that's the reason. You'll get a totally different result if you do it any way you want to. And people do it right now any way they want to, and you get different results. So it's like a crapshoot, right? And so uh, that's, I think, uh, one of the reasons is that there needs to be a single interpretation and a single way that people are doing things when there is a mandatory language type document. The other reason is for legal reasons. And I'm guessing that mandatory languages have a very strong influence in court settings. You know, So that could be another reason. And so there is always someone in at that committee who is working as the, let's say, committee's conscience that says, if you write it like this, the lawyers will get you because they can take a different take to this and say, you met what was asked for. And so that's why we spend that time. And I think, you know, initially it's really frustrating. And especially if you're an outsider sitting in on a committee and you don't know the background of what they're discussing, it would be really frustrating. And, and it took a little while and, and sort of now we have become tuned into driving that kind of crap in the committees that we sit on, you know. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to pretend that we don't know anything about litigious situations, but we're becoming a bigger company here where we work and we've got an in-house lawyer and man, some of the stuff they'll write for us. I'm like, wow, like. It seems like you're shouting at the customer that's trying to buy product from you. Like, what are we, right. <laughs> what are we right. doing? Here? Well, we're protecting our rear end because yeah. you guys have vulnerabilities yeah. here, and we're gonna we're gonna do things that are in the best interest of this company. Right. Uh, so, so I understand you there. Thank you for that clarification. I feel like I'm thinking we're learning so I'm learning so much here. That's that's the point of the guest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So again, another one of the things I learned when I was involved in some of these specifications are coming out. Uh, even the revisions to existing specifications can take 18 months to get a revision in uh, a new specification years, years. Why is the process so long? What, what makes that process so long? Uh, so the process that we use, let's say in ACI and ASTM is a consensus process. So we have to listen to First of all, we have to have committee voting uh, structures that are balanced between the producers of a product or the system or whatever versus the users and the general interest people. So you can't have a committee that's overwhelming uh, on a particular entity in that in that sense. So if you're looking at the co committee that's writing a specification for ready-mix concrete, mm -hmm. okay, you would have a certain number of voting members who are representing ready-mix companies, and I would be one of them because I'm a representative of the industry and then you would have people who buy concrete or people who are generally not associated with a ready mix company balancing out the, the, the process so the the short answer is that once you come up with that system you have people that have other objections to certain things that you've written in there they wanted to be written differently some people are 
sometimes philosophically opposed to what you're doing. Some people are just, uh, you know, that way. And it's very hard to deal with people who are philosophically opposed. I mean, if we generally say that if you have an objection to something, write whatever you feel that will satisfy you. That's part of writing a negative. Mm -hmm. Just don't say, I don't like it, because then we can throw your negative out. So that's one of the directions. And so uh, the reason why it takes so long, let's say, is, you know, and some of this has moved along a little bit faster in more recent years, but because there's a cycle. So you have, let's say, Airsteam meets uh, every six months. You would have two sets of ballots between those uh, meetings. And then you come up with the negatives and you compile all of them. You have email conversations with the negative voters telling them why they're wrong or why they should withdraw their negative. And then if they still don't withdraw the negative, then we go to a committee meeting. We'll say this was the negative. And, uh, and then we'll say, we think he's wrong. Can we, can we get the support of the committee to tell, tell us he's wrong? And then, then, then you'll get that vote. Uh, and so the process is the is slow, but I think the process has some value because you listen to everybody's perspective and eventually you may not get totally exactly what you want, but you get something that is acceptable to all in, in that sense. You know, if I compare that to the uh, process where the state highway agencies write their standards, that's not a consensus base because only the state highway agencies are involved in writing those standards. We go and sit in those meetings, but whatever we say has no force and effect. We can say whatever we want, but they don't have to listen to us. So they can publish standards almost immediately because there's not much review. And some of that comes back to bite industry because eventually those standards are impacting industry. So that wouldn't be a consensus process. We know that, you know, contractors and, you know, ready bricks producers, they see different sides of, you know, the process, batching, placing and whatnot. Do contractors have any say or do you have any contractors that are members of an RMCA that show up to these meetings and provide their input? So when we're looking at the standards committee, so that would be a different venue, right? Uh, so you're talking about, yeah, we do have contractors, some contractor members in NRMCA, we have very good relationships with contractors. And so we partner with the American Society of Concrete Contractors. Uh, and, you know, we have had a very strong focus, especially when we want to switch a uh, product or a system, or, or if we want to uh, promote a certain product, that if the producer and the contractor go together to the owner, uh, we have a better chance of uh, getting that switch. Now, in the standards arena, uh, at ACI, you do have a lot of contractors, and, and sometimes you may have a committee that would be very, very leaning towards contractor point of view. For example, the committee on floors, uh, construction of industrial floor slabs, uh, ACI 302, has primarily mostly only contractors on that committee. Sometimes what they write in their documents may not necessarily support a ready mix interest. So, you know, so you have both sides of that issue. Well, I actually want to talk about one of the uh, one specifically. So ASTM C94. I feel like every every once in a while you'll see a headline uh, out in our, our spaces that talk about more research has been done to show that we can extend the time of usable concrete beyond 90 minutes or 300 revolutions. We can extend that, maybe even double it. Uh, what are those conversations really looking like behind the scenes? What's going on there? 
So uh, you may not be aware, but uh, just about three weeks ago, we actually have a standard C94 published where those that limit on 90 minutes was removed. And that effort to remove that particular limit uh, basically took almost 10 years before it got approved because there was there was both you know opinions on various sides and even while it was almost getting approved in the in the last minute there was a lot of opposition uh to removing it so the history of this of course is and and i might have a biased opinion though i'm not supposed to have one um but basically <laughs> basically this uh 90 minute limit was put into the specification in its first version in 1935 so in 1935, when we loaded a ready-mix truck, we opened up a hatch and we put stuff in it and we took it to the job site. Sometimes we didn't even mix it. We took it to the job site and then mixed it. But you never had a hopper that you could then add water through. You basically had to discharge that load. And so there was no opportunity for job site adjustments, whereas uh, now you do. And now you have a lot of technology where you can extend or reduce the time. So the concept was not necessarily that we wanted to extend the time we wanted to have a time that was more relevant to a order so if you had a project that was 10 minutes away on a driving thing but uh but they were basically pumping concrete slowly into an icf wall you might hold that truck up for even two hours before that truck started discharging. So I think the point is here that uh, we basically wanted to have, as part of the ordering process, a better agreement between the purchaser and the producer as to what the delivery or discharge time might be. On the business side of things, we, we estimate that the cost of delivery of a load of concrete is about 18% of the sale price. When you buy something from Amazon, that Amazon may not be a good, a good example, but for others, you get a shipping and handling cost, right? Or if you buy it from Amazon, that cost is somehow in the price. Whereas we don't have that. Even if we buy cement, we're basically buying cement at the plant and then the delivery cost is charged to you additionally. We don't have that for ready-mix concrete. Now, not that I'm saying that it should be there, but the, the fact of the matter is that if your delivery cost, the delivery cost is basically your truck time, the driver's salary, your depreciation on the truck, all that stuff is 18%. If it exceeds 18%, you're losing money on that, on that project. So if you got three yards going to a residential driveway and that guy has his form work still in the back of his pickup truck when the truck reaches a job, that truck for three yards is going to sit there for three hours and you, you have that truck out of circulation, so you cannot support another load. So I think it was more of a get a better understanding. The other side of that is if you, if and then C94 is not about the business practice, but it's about the quality of concrete. Uh, and, and so if you have a load that uh, cannot afford to, to be a prolonged delivery, you know what happens? Like your podcast says, give me 10 gallons, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, right. And so that's the thing that we're trying to avoid. We don't want to keep adding 10 or 30 gallons to a load of concrete uh, and, and that spoils the quality. 
So we have stuff in 394 that says that you should not exceed the mix design, but guess what? That's the most violated thing because as soon as the truck reaches the job, the contractor is saying, give me some water without even looking at the load, right? And that's how you got the name of your podcast. So, and, and so, you know, that was one of the things that they say, if you basically have a better understanding of what the time to discharge would be, then you may have to spend some money to control that time of discharge by adding a certain product, but that's going to cost money. And you'll have to pass that cost on to the customer uh, and, and those sorts of things. Now, that's the broad picture, but then there are various business reasons why people have objected to the change just because they did not maybe want to get into the conversation because they said it was written in the standard this is what you're supposed to do whereas now you have to negotiate that with them and if they say okay if you want it for two hours it's going to cost you that much their competitor might say i'll give it to you for this much for the same time you know so that that type of stuff so there are business reasons behind why people don't want uh, to, to remove the limit but right now the limit has been removed so that's moving forward so removed, removed completely. Like there's no the revolution. There is no revolution limit. The revolution limit was removed some time ago. Uh, time limit was just removed, but that doesn't mean that there is no limit. The limit is set by the agreement between the purchaser and the producer. So what they sort of say, C ninety four says, is that uh, the purchaser at the time of ordering concrete shall give an indication of the time for discharge. And if they don't set one, then they basically, the producer can set the time. And so the issue here is, let's say 90 minutes, there's nothing magic about it, okay? There are mixes, uh, if, if it's 100 degrees out there and it's a curb mix, it will never last 90 minutes, everybody knows that. So 90 minutes doesn't is not a measure or protection of quality. Uh, and, and so that was one of the issues. The only opposition I ever heard to it change in the c94 about the time limit and because i feel like we got breaking news here i mean this thing was updated three weeks ago yeah. so i feel like it's breaking news for the pod which happens quite often with our guests so thank you but one of the uh counter arguments was why change it because there is still the caveat in there when it before before you changed it but so why change it because there's a caveat that uh you can exceed 90 minutes as long as the person who's buying the concrete acknowledges that They're like yes yeah, you know they just sign off like yeah it's more than 90 minutes yeah, we're not going to reject yeah. this load this concrete's fine i think basically it does say that it can be waived but everybody ignored that waiver basically the waiver was if the slump was adequate and you didn't have to add water to the load in excess then you could waive the limit the problem is that the limit i mean it, so it's two things it's not necessarily trying to avoid rejecting good loads not necessarily about even though there's some of that um, but but there's also this understanding that is more evident let's say between the two parties regarding the time to discharge because let's face it 50 percent of the people who buy concrete don't know anything about c94 so they don't know anything about the time limit and i would say 80 percent of the concrete that's sold probably violates some clause in c94 any, anyway probably also fair <laughs> unless you go to unless you go to court and then that's probably uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah then you're on your p's and q's i like how you uh you started saying that add 10 gallons was a very apt name but then i think maybe you alluded there that maybe add 30 gallons would have been a more apt name. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah 
Uh, we got three yards at 30 gallons. It's like the conflowable fill. So <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about these uh, new specifications, new test methods. Is there, uh, is there anything that's like on the horizon that you're excited about that's new, that's coming out that we should be aware of? The, uh, there are several initiatives, right? Like you know, there is a, a big concern regarding the issue of um, of uh, fly ash supply. Okay, and so you know, there's going to be increasing pressure on the coal industry to stop burning coal, and so our fly ash supply is sort of going to go away, and everybody sort of recognizes that. Even right now, people are scrambling in some places even to get cement, but fly ash is getting scarce and when you get it you don't know what to know how it's going to perform okay uh, so there are efforts now to say okay we've got a lot of dumped fly ash and what they want to call this is reclaimed ash and so they're trying to write and some of it is bottom ash so it fell down uh, instead of flying up the burn burner and and so they're trying to reclaim these uh, or trying to see whether some of these disposal sites can be reclaimed and processed to produce a good SEM for use. Um, and then some of it is possible. It depends on how it was dumped. If it was just fly ash and bottom ash, it can be taken out and you know reprocessed. If it's got other chemicals in it, it may not be salvageable. But then there are the regulatory issues that they have to deal with. So there are efforts now to write standards that would increase the supply, let's say, of alternative supplementary cementing materials of possibly reusing the reclaimed ash just by changing the standards to develop a performance specification for pozzolanic material. Uh, there are efforts to uh, change or introduce some new tests for durability of concrete. Uh, that would be a little more easier and more reliable to, to perform. Probably are aware that uh, recently uh, published a specification on the use of ground glass as a pozzolan. So those yep. are actually now available quite a bit. Uh, so drink more beer, create more pozzolan. Uh, <laughs> so that, that that's interesting. Um, and and so there are uh, those sorts of initiatives. And I think the biggest challenge that. Uh, we're going to see going in going in the future is uh, reducing the carbon footprint of concrete, and so uh, we'll see initiatives more and more that are not only not looking at minimum cement contents but trying to say maximum cement content. So it then gets challenging. It's another prescriptive limit on a mix, and mm -hmm. and it's not always rational because what they say is that well, I designed my beam for 4,000 psi. And therefore, I don't want to use more than 400 pounds of cement, for example. Whereas they forgot to say that, oh, by the way, we needed an early age strength to post-tension that beam at three days. Well, now you've got another contradictory requirement that makes it hard when you put a maximum cement content limit on there. So the, the, the concepts of, you know, we're going to go green. You saw just yesterday they had the summit and we've got some goals to meet by, in, by 2030. That's going to hit the cement industry and the concrete industry somehow. Yeah, we'll see. 
um, <laughs> we can't talk about uh, politics. That green yeah. summit, dude. This is going to go off the rails. Listen, Josh and I <laughs> have so many thoughts on that. I'll get, that I'll get way down a rabbit hole on that subject. It's going to get, it's gonna get rough. Yeah. So we we're gonna we're Not gonna worth- steer right out of those choppy waters. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna but, come but right But it's back. not only a political a political thing because you've got architectures or architects who are uh, basically got goals. We've got structural engineers who've got goals. And so they're going to design and specify concrete uh, to be competitive or, you know, with wood and whatever the greenwashing, the wood industry does on, on their side. What are your thoughts on 1L cement, Portland limestone cement? We think that's an avenue to help get there. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a good uh, good uh, initiative. I mean, this is a very easy option. Uh, and so we look at, uh, let's say we had a mixed design that we produced for 4,000 PSI. And we have to show an engineer that we can reduce, let's say, the carbon footprint of that mixed design in, in some way. Okay. We've got several options and we've got a technology and practice sheet that talks about various options that a producer can use. So, you know, easily you can optimize your mixed design. Uh, the, the main thing, of course, uh, is the cement content, right? That overwhelms the carbon footprint of the concrete. So the goal is to reduce the cement content. Uh, and actually, it's not only cement content, it's the clinker portion of that cement, which is coming out of the kiln. Uh, so a type 1L cement compared to a type 1 cement has 10% less clinker. So if it gives you the same performance, and if you can use the same amount of SCMs that you did with your type 1, it's an easy switch for the 10% reduction in carbon footprint. The challenge is, is it the same product? Is it is it equivalent? So there is a little bit of challenge to the cement industry that they have to manufacture it so that you get equivalent performance. That means grinding it finer. That could increase water demand, that it could increase some other effect uh, that has to be considered. But uh, if it if it gets there, then it's an easy option for the ready-mix guys to use. The other side for the ready-mix guy is that, uh, you know, they, they, have, uh, they are silo-constrained, right? So... They probably have two silos for cementitious materials. So if they have a project that is totally green and they have to do a 1L cement, uh, then they have to either switch out to everything for a 1L cement because they can't generally justify one silo for 1L and one silo for type 2. You know, We were just having this conversation on a job site in New York City with the concrete supplier, this exact conversation where they were looking for efforts to go green and we're like, well, why aren't you? trying one else cement you know everything we've seen it's it looks pretty good and you cut your carbon by carbon emissions maybe by 10 percent, maybe 12 percent uh and the silo constraint was the number one thing so you got to switch everything over to it but if the performance is just as good i think where they got hung up was price you know i, I know we've been trying to talk technical here but a lot of things get drugged back into the business side but it seems to me that the from what I'm hearing from people in the industry is uh, the cement producers are trying to charge a premium for this technology. And that is from the people we've talked to in the field, that's really slowing the adoption down. They don't want to pay more for a different cement. Yeah. I'm not aware and I'm not allowed to speak on price. So that, yeah, but I can only <laughs> talk about the equivalence and performance. So, you know, as long as it's equivalent performance, the, the issue is that when you have a mindset that you, let's say you have spent a certain amount of paid a certain amount for let's say fly ash traditionally as the fly ash supply gets different and let's say a company who is supplying fly ash has to now dig something out of the ground grind it 
burn it in some way, process it, it's going to increase in price. So what you thought you were paying for fly ash, let's say 50 bucks a ton or whatever, you may not be paying that anymore. So, you know, there is a, there is a cost to doing something and that cost has to be generally passed on to the, to the user. All very true. Uh, you know, there's a lot of materials that are fantastic for concrete, but because of their price, they're not being used right now. And, uh, you know, that's one part of the discussion, but we respect the fact that you can't really delve into that. So let's move on to another thing. I really want to ask you here. Uh, if you were magically all powerful in one of these committees, whether it's a committee inside of ASTM or ACI or wherever it is, and, and you, there's a problem that you see right now and at the snap of your fingers, uh, you could solve that problem and make things better. In, in your opinion, it would make them better in whatever way. What would be the thing that you would do? I am not presumptuous to, uh, enough to think that I'm an expert to, to answer that question. So I would basically try to, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to uh, drastically change. So my, my, my basic uh, philosophy is that I don't know everything and I would uh, try to use the wisdom of people around me to come up with the best consensus. And that's why I think uh, our participation with our technical committee in the ready mix industry to make sure that whatever we are supporting or promoting uh, is uh, beneficial to them. And then when we go to the standards arena, we have some sort of a, uh, understanding of the other perspectives that, uh, that, uh, that would, uh, that would uh, drive any particular standard. But I think basically we want to make sure that our industry moves forward at a faster level and we should not basically try to write standards for the lowest common denominator. And so, for example, while we were trying to negotiate this change to the 90 minutes, the argument came that, well, there are some people who wouldn't know how to uh, state a time or they wouldn't know be producers who would know how to establish a time for their mix or time limit for their mix. Well, I don't think that's a good argument. I think, you know, when you when you want to move forward on something, uh, you, you write it and people will learn how to work with it, you know, in, in that in that sense. And, and, and we have too many things in there that uh, are written so that it holds back people who want to progress just because we're trying to cater to the lowest common denominator. It was like writing an exam for the short course. And if I wrote it to the guy that I knew that would never have a chance, then everybody could get certified. And then the value of that certification would not be very good. Right, Paul? <laughs> oh, yes. Plenty of value in that certification. <laughs> if, you're, if you're paying the money to spend the four or five days for that, you better... <laughs> You're going to get your money's worth. That's right. How about we just put it there? <laughs> what The numbers on the people that pass the level three exam, are they're not high. It's hard. It's just not high. Yeah. So you you were addressing us to the pandemic. And I don't know whether you were addressing or wanted to address that problem. but uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we want to go where you want to go, brother. So please take us. So for the, pandem the pandemic had some impact on NRMCA. So last March, I think it was the 12th, we had just returned from Vegas, uh, from Boulder Concrete, and that was the last flight I took. And we basically, I left my office on March 12th, and I haven't gone back since. And, and basically, uh, there was a lot of uh, trepidation within not only the industry, but within our association as to what the future would be. 
um, you know, and and so basically, I think the industry uh, association as well as the others basic uh, work towards making ensuring that con construction was considered essential. Uh, we had very few states, maybe three states, that actually shut down construction for a certain period of time, whereas some did not, most did not, and so the industry continued to progress. And so we saw that the amount of ready mix concrete produced last year was actually one percent higher than the previous year. Uh, and it would, you know, drop down in March significantly, but then it picked back up as people started getting busy again. Uh, we in the association took a, a strong point. I think it was also recognized that we took all the efforts to make sure that construction was considered essential and, and things moved along. Uh, we took it, uh, made sure that we were uh, visible to the industry. We started off with a lot of webinars. A lot of them were free. We used to have 500 people sitting on these mostly promotion type webinars, but very uh, technical and educational in there. They're all recorded with the in, and posted on the Build with Strength site. Um, and then the concept of uh, doing remote uh, classes also uh, came up. And so we've... Uh, had to evolve all our classwork uh, or courses into an online process. The advantage of that, uh, the disadvantage, of course, you, you did not have the interaction and you had no clue whether people were actually uh, hooking into you, right? Uh, whether you had the attention, um, the exam pass rate is reasonable. Uh, we also had the opportunity then to record all our sessions. So some of our more recent courses we haven't had to physically present. We just use the recordings from the previous course, and then we would have periodic sessions for uh, discussions. Uh, so people would come and ask questions, and we would have discussions. So that's uh, that's evolved pretty well, and we've actually had a lot more attendance in our courses uh, because, first of all, it is uh, a slightly lower registration rate. We did not have any expense associated with travel and catering and hotels. And so mm -hmm. forth, and, and the attendees didn't have to also um, do that. So all our courses, while we gave them live, were recorded. So if someone couldn't make it, they could go back in the evening and listen to a recording of it. Um, and, and they could re-listen re to it if they really wanted to punish themselves. So, you know, that, uh, um, that, that, that advantage was there. So, for example, we had a week-long course, and, and you can relate to this, uh, we, we would teach you or dump a lot of stuff on you from Monday to Thursday and give you two exams on Friday. Whereas in an in a online course, we actually gave them at least three days after the end of the course. And each, even though it was spread out over two weeks, they had at least three days to study and grasp the information so that they had a better chance of doing the exam. So I think it's worked out well. Uh, uh, one of the challenges is with the with the with the committee meetings and the lack of interaction there. And you had a question related to uh, the progression of standards, and and so ASTM has been relatively slow, but ACI has been uh, pretty active in in, in various committees uh, moving stuff forward. And while we used to wait every six months for a meeting, many committees are now meeting almost uh, monthly to to move stuff forward. Uh, online and that might be something that will continue in the in the future you know where you resolve a lot of stuff before you actually come face to face at a meeting that's actually a good point if you wanted to move stuff faster have more meetings instead of every six months yeah. even every three months because right. right. do, do they need three months to publish why their negative has merit 
I mean, I, maybe they don't need six months to do that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think ASTM has a little bit of concern on the voting on the voting process. They don't they don't feel that, but ACI has uh, evolved so that they have while you're on a meeting, you're on uh, the committee website and you can vote online. So every vote is recorded. Uh, and, and and that way, rather than writing it in the chat box or something, it's it's actually an official report record of the of the process. No, that's great. That's great. Well, uh, before we let you go, before we let you get out of here, uh, got to know what's the craziest thing you've seen on a job site or in one of your testing labs. So, you know, I don't get out much. I sit at a desk mostly, but I do. I, I periodically look out and it's like when you know what the book says that you should do, it's amazing what you might see, let's say, just for finishing and, and curing on a slab. You'll never see curing. Uh, and you'll see the, you know, the blessing and all that kind of stuff. And that's just horrible. And, you know, we've had slabs right, right outside our office, you know, where they're just doing the wrong thing. And we say, okay, we'll bring the book to you. And the guy says... Or for war, I don't know what you're talking about type of thing. And so you, you have to live with that. So that's the way it is. But, you know, one of the biggest things that our industry has, and this is going back maybe even back to the 60s, and it's still the number one problem, is the uh, reliability of testing cylinders for strength. And so not that I've been on a job site, but this was humorous that we show in our courses, uh, the one quality control guy sitting in his truck, uh, with this camera, and uh, there was a small trench uh, over there uh, between the pickup truck for the cylinders and where the cylinders were stored. And I, I, I could tell from the picture that they weren't really stored very well. But it, uh, he couldn't get it to his pickup truck. So basically, this was about 10 foot, and he's throwing his cylinders across the trench so that the guy on the other side can collect them and put them in his pickup truck so they can go bouncing over to the lab, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure there was a strength problem on that job. Oh, <laughs> For sure. For sure. Oh, that's great. Um, I got I to gotta circle back to one thing. Uh, you mentioned that NRMCA has a published list of things that concrete pro producers can do to potentially reduce the carbon footprint of the concrete that they're making. Is that, did I hear you right? You have a published list somewhere? Well, we have a published, what we call a technology and practice uh, sheet. You know, we got uh, CIPs, which you might be familiar with. They are one pagers on various topics, but we also got a TIP, technology and practice series. And uh, one of the topics that we recently released was steps that you can take to reduce your carbon footprint. So we say, okay, you can use a high range and reduce your cement content that way, you optimize your mix, uh, or you could use increased amount of SEMs. You could use a type 1L cement. You could uh, optimize your aggregate gradation. So various things that you can consider to reduce your carbon footprint. Now, we have a whole uh, different division that deals with sustainability, and they can help you negotiate what does an EPD mean, uh, what is an industry average EPD and all those sorts of things. We have a, uh, a group that can help you out with, with those and those questions. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, when we publish this podcast, we put links to interesting things that we've talked about. So uh, that will be one of the things that yeah. Josh, he wrote already, it down. Already We're going to make sure we link to it. So anybody listening to this right now can uh, go to the podcast page where they're listening to our show. And uh, you'll see a link to what he's talking about. So you can find that sustainability 
uh, assistance through the NRMC. Yeah. Uh, Joey Belt, do you have anything else uh, for Mr. Lobo before we let him go? Uh, no, I can't think of anything. Uh, Colin, thanks for coming on. Learned a lot about NRMCA and uh, hope a lot of people take a lot from this episode. Uh, I'd be willing to bet that the majority of people out there don't know what goes on behind the scenes at NRMCA and how much influence you guys really have. Well, thank you. I think you should change the name of your hard podcast to say hold back 10 gallons. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a prescriptive podcast. So That's right. <laughs> it's a performance space. Okay, podcast. cool. <laughs> anyway, I enjoyed, I enjoyed your discussion and uh, hope, well, hopefully it'll be good. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is great. Look, look, I know when we first talked about doing this, uh, I could hear a little hesitancy in your voice. Like, I don't know if you really want a technical guy on this. Man, you were awesome. This is fantastic. No, because, you know, really? we've been talking in our community as to being more present on social media. And, and you know, social media is, uh, is difficult. I know that if I look at my kids and there's no way you can keep up with them because I don't have, I don't even have Facebook. I probably am only on LinkedIn. But even if you just follow LinkedIn, you can spend a half a day just going through everybody's posts on that stuff and waste a lot of time. And so we say that we need to be uh, more strongly present. And one of the things that we talked about was developing videos, let's say, for uh, people to use on simple test methods. This is how you would do that. Or uh, writing uh, or just a very brief presentation on why you should not specify a maximum cement content. How do you specify for ASR? You know, basically snippets on how directed to them. One of the things that uh, was mentioned was a podcast where you invite an influential person to talk about some crap. <laughs> so I said, shit, now I gotta do this myself. <laughs> so that was, that was the source of my hesitancy. Uh, well, I'm glad we stole your idea. We got the name. We're glad we got the name before uh, you were able to take that from us. That's good. Cool. <laughs> All, right. All right, man. Okay. Thanks so much Thanks for being here. I've enjoyed it. Have Take care. Yeah, man. Bye, bye. And that's going to do it for this edition of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Thanks so much for Colin coming on the show, sharing his uh, infinite wisdom, stories, and information. We certainly appreciate that. And we appreciate you for being with us for this episode. Thanks for listening in. Be sure to follow us on our social pages. That's the Facebook and Instagram page that we have for the channel. Uh, search out Add 10 Gallons for the additional content that we have on there between episodes. And also tell a friend about us and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. And for some additional content, remember that Paul and I are doing a quarantine update special edition podcast where we are currently quarantining in Montreal, Canada on our way up to none of it to work at a gold mine there in their paste backfill operation. And before we can do that, we have to quarantine. So we bring you guys along for a daily update on our trials, tribulations, and information that we come upon as we travel and quarantine during these times in a country with some pretty strict COVID-19 regulations. So uh, there's always some good tidbits, information and stories shared on that. So make sure you follow along with us on our journey. And then uh, tune back in next time here as we'll be coming at you shortly within uh, the next couple weeks for the latest edition, which will be the 18th episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. So until then, y'all be good.